Thank you so much for uh, finally, I kind of feel like I was talking with somebody just a minute ago and we were kind of laughing, finally we're in chapter one. Can you just give God a shout? So <laughs> we, we took two weeks to prepare for chapter one and uh, because I wanted to make sure that we started the right way. I wanted to make sure the foundation of kind of knowing where I'm coming from as I teach this, again, a disclaimer. I understand that there's many, many, many views on the book of Revelation uh, from all of the symbols that are there to the tribulation period and all of the uh, doctrines that are out there. So I'm very aware of those and I'm trying to be fair to my own to teach, you know, in a way that I believe what I have researched and what I've studied out over the years and trying to present that to you. Again, the disclaimer goes this way, if it's my opinion, I will say so. And if I believe it's something I've worked out in Scripture, I will say so. And if I find something along the way that's different from what I've always believed because of study, I'll change what I believe to fit the Bible. So I'm okay with that. I'm okay that as you grow in Christ, you come to different understandings. So you're getting the 55-year-old Mark Evans understanding of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. Well, without any further ado, let's just jump right in. Let's do a recap first from last week. We're going to do about a two or three minute recap every week just to kind of jar our mind. I do ask you to go back and study them. Uh, we're in lesson three, but chapter one. So we will do them that way, lesson four, chapter two, as we run through it. So here's the recap for the week of what we opened up last week and we started looking at. And it was this thought. That we talked about time, Jesus Christ being the beginning and the end. We talked about there's an indefinite continued progress of existence and events that occur in an irreversible succession. And we said, maybe that's not a great definition of time, which came right out of Wikipedia. And you know they're always right. But we came to this, the rethink last week. Time has a beginning and an end. It's not just some indefinite continued process on and on and on and on and on. There was a definite start and there was a definite end. And then we said this, time has a beginning and an end and is not an indefinite continued procession. Why? Because we came to this conclusion last week, time is a person, Jesus Christ. And it says this, he says this of himself, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then he says this of himself, and when I saw him, this is John, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last. We came to this thought. The start and the finish is at the same place because it's a person. And we kind of landed on, you don't have to believe this, but this is what we taught, that time is not just linear, just straight line to the end. It's an out and a back. And so this is kind of what we drew it as. There's the alpha, the omega, the first. And there's the omega last in the end. And instead of time just continuing on because it's a person... The beginning is a person, the end is a person. We left this thought that perhaps a good way to rethink would be time moves a certain distance and then there's a turnaround. And we came to the seven beginnings that begin with God. Here they were, the heavens and the earth, Satan's sin, the Jewish nation, God in the flesh, the resurrection, and the church. Those were the seven things that we pulled out of Scripture that had definite beginnings. And we know that anything God begins, He has to do what? He has to end it. We came to that thought. Everything God begins, God ends. So we came to a logical assumption that if God begins it, only God can end it. 
And we made a comment about the local church that the world, Satan, will never end the local church. No matter how much they shut us down or say we can't meet, God began it, only God can end it. So we came to this thought, if there were seven beginnings in succession, one through seven on the left, that we could do the turnaround and go back up one through seven back toward the end. The book of Genesis is the beginning, Revelation is the end. My belief is, I feel like we went through it pretty clear last week, my belief is the beginnings are the endings of Revelation and that's why we go back through it and we can walk through Revelation laid out pretty much this way. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. We took a lot more time than that to do it, but tonight is fun. So open your Bibles to chapter 1. My heart would be to finish tonight, but I'm trying to be smart to think there's no way we're going to get through chapter 1 tonight. And if you're okay with it, I would rather go through it slowly than try to rush it. And so I just feel like that'll be better for all of us. So I'm, I'm kind of leaning toward keeping an eye on where we are and just teaching it slowly and methodically at least through chapter 1. Uh, because I believe there again, chapter 1 is going to be critical to understand the rest of it, of what happens in chapter 1, and to gain an understanding of even how to understand what is going on in the future uh, of chapter 4 all the way through, which we would say would be the future. So open your Bibles. Let's look at the first series of scriptures, verse 1. I'll try to do it like this on the screen so you can follow along. If it is a Bible verse, I will have the word scripture up top just so you'll be able to know that it's not just a thought that I'm giving, but an actual scripture. So I'll do that on all the slides for the future just so we can all kind of trek together. Here's verse 1 of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. Here's what I want you to understand, that God wants the future to be known. And I almost am certain that every human wants to know the future. It's why people get locked up into horoscopes and fortune cookies from the Japanese restaurant. We like to feel like we know the future. And so whether that's Ouija boards that people will get into in the dark side of life, whether it's tarot card readings, uh, crystal balls, magic arts, horoscopes, those things, I think we all could say that there is an insatiable desire in humans to like to know the future. What does my future look like? Could I get, you know, there's some places that are still in existence. Can you read my palm? Can you tell me how long I'll live? Can you tell me what my life is going to be like? Uh, it's so obsessed in us that we can even do genetic testing. We can take it the science route rather than the spiritual route and do genetic testing on you and kind of map your future based on genetic testing. What's the likelihood you could get sick? What's the likelihood you'll live long? What's the likelihood that you could die young? And we can genetic map your life. So I will say that... Uh, I just, I just want you to understand as we begin this thing that, that that thinking that this book is too hard for me to know is a deception propagated by the enemy because he does not want you to understand you can know this book. 
And as I talk to people, it becomes really clear in the minds of many people that revelation is just too hard. I don't understand it. There's so much to it, and so we kind of just ignore it or casually read it and never dig it out. I made a joke this week that pretty much my life now is this. I start studying tomorrow morning. I study all day Thursday, Friday, some on Saturday, all day Monday, Tuesday to hopefully show up with my fingers crossed that it halfway makes sense because I want to be very methodical. If God said it can be known, I want to mine it out and know it. Here's what the word revelation means. The Greek word is apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse. You may have seen the movie, The Apocalypse. Uh, we even talk about the things of the apocalypse, the end, when the end all comes. It's that thinking that there is an end coming. We made a joke last week that that end is a, uh, you know, the zombies are coming. There's going to be a nuclear war and zombies are going to come and there's all kind of, you know, series is out on Netflix and Hulu about zombies taking over the world. But the word revelation means this, to unveil or uncover as lifting up a curtain so that that which is a mystery, and I like the, the phrase at the end, it, it may be known to all. So I don't really believe it takes a smart person to understand revelation. It just takes a dedicated person. Uh, it takes a person that's willing to mine it out. It's no different than going, I wish I could find treasure, but you'll never find treasure if you don't go out and look for it. If all you do is read about it in a history book, that there's Blackbeard's treasure, but you never get on a boat and go try to find it, and then we can talk ourselves, well, maybe it's not real. So what I would like to say is you have to come to the knowledge that Revelation is a real book. It's talking about the real future. It's not just some made-up thing. But it's a mystery that can be uncovered. Now, I believe one of the reasons we don't really go there in our study of the book of Revelation is because the word revelation scares us, but the word literally means to unveil or uncover. So if we change the title of the book and said, uh, this is the book of uncovering and unveiling, more people would probably read it. Like, oh wow, I can probably know something that I didn't know, but... When you put revelation at the top of it, it's really freaky and people get nervous. So as we go into it, uh, here's, what I, here's what I want to say to that as we go into it. That um, Jesus is going to uncover the events of the future that will lead toward his redemptive plan. So this mystery that's known by all, uh, here's what we need to know about this. That as I as I come to want to know it, I'm going to have to know that it's going to take study to know it. It's no different than me saying math is possible. And for those of you that flunk math, you're going to be, it's not possible. And then I'm going to say, for those of us, me included, that flunked math, I would love to introduce you to Becky Balcom. And Becky Balcom will teach you math. And she will unveil it for you. And she will, it, she, it's called a tutor. And she will teach you all the things you need to know about math. So this is the same way of the uncovering. If you want to write a scripture down, I'll read it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, if you will. 2 Timothy 2, 15. And like I say, I'd like to go through it slow, if you don't mind. And just take our time to really do it. But... 
Listen to 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive His approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Work hard at it. I think the reason many people just are afraid of revelation is Christians are lazy. I don't mean that rude to anybody in the room. But we just want to do a devotion, sip some coffee, and check a box to go, well, I did my devotion, I feel better about myself. And then wonder, why don't I really understand the deeper things and the deeper truths of God? It's no different than a kid going from math that is numbers to math that is letters. That's where I fell apart. I thought, what idiot turned math into letters? Numbers were easy. One plus one is two. (laughs) I got a lot of amens there, Becky. Uh, (laughs) But how many of you know what I'm talking about? When they change math into letters, it's like, I'm peace out, man. I can't do letters. A plus B equals C squared minus X, Y, Z. I have no clue what you're talking about. Um, but, But the reason many people don't know it is we just don't study. And I would present to you that there's many Christians today that at best they do a devotion, but they really don't mine out the truth of God. And so what my prayer is, is as we go through this very methodically, uh, hopefully it will make you jealous to mine it yourself and to dig it out to want to know more. Here's the thought. Jesus is going to uncover the events of the future that will lead toward the end of his redemptive plan. So remember he's the beginning and he started a redemptive plan. When people say, why would God make a human being knowing that human being would sin? It's because you're only thinking of Adam and Eve and God's feeling about them. But the reason Adam and Eve showed up was nothing of just God needing a human to chit-chat with. Because the redemptive plan was before there was ever even an earth made, the Son of God was already prophetically going to come. Before there was ever even a human who sinned, the Son of God, the Word of God, was destined before time ever even began. So that is a, that is a strange thought that if we put the box of time as a beginning and an end, and right here at the very beginning is Adam and Eve's sin, and we go, why would God do that? And God says, well, step into my world, remove time. Before there was ever this box called time with a human, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. That ought to bring a little different understanding to us. That the reason He brought Adam and Eve was so the Son of God could come and redeem the world. And it becomes more about Jesus, His redemption. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 15. I would like to read what is the end of that redemptive plan, starting in verse 12. Uh, Most people read this at a a funeral because it's a funeral-type message. But it is Paul to the church of Corinth writing about the end of the redemptive plan. There is an end in sight. Come on, somebody. There, There is an end coming. Uh, We may not live long enough to see it, but we will see it whether we see it with our feet here or we see it in eternity when it does happen. Verse 12, But tell me this, Paul said, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, 
Why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we've said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who've died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, are you ready for this? We're to be pitied more than anyone in the world. Do you get that? I don't want to move forward until that sinks in. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, heal me, fix me, bless me, you know, if my hope is only for him to bless me here, Paul says we're to be more pity than anybody else in the whole world. Because Paul is looking beyond this thing we call time. Paul is looking beyond the problems of the day. Paul is looking beyond the frustrations we all go through. And Paul's looking out into an eternal future that has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. He said, now your hope needs to be on that. And this is why the book of Revelation is so powerful. This is why there's a blessing connected to it. We're going to see that in a minute. There is a blessing because what it does is it pushes you into the thing of church. It pushes you into the power of the resurrection. It pushes you into the reigning of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Paul will tell Timothy this. When you look to that, there's a blessed hope that comes knowing that Jesus Christ is going to return. It gives you a blessed hope. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Well, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first. We're going to pull this out later in the, in the study. He's the first of a great harvest of all who died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Now watch this. It's going to show up in our later studies. But there is an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn. So watch, now we're in the book of Revelation right now. So Paul, talking to Corinth, has pushed us into the prophetic future. And here's the prophetic future. You ready? He said he's going to come back, verse 24. And after he comes back, the end will come. There's that certainty of an end. When he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority, and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I wish I could say right now the cross eliminated death, that physical death that we all face, but it didn't. It, it eliminated that death of my soul where I can't spend time. But there is coming a day when he will finally put that enemy to that enemy death to rest. Death is not just an event. Death is not just a funeral. Death is a literal spirit that works to hold captive the souls of humans so they cannot know the life of God. We're going to see how God deals with this thing in the future, but listen to how Paul ends it. He said, for the scripture says in verse 27, God has put all things under his authority. Say, under his authority. 
This is going to be a critical thought in the book of Revelation because a lot of times we go into it thinking, oh my, this is a whole book about the devil, Uh, 666, tribulation, and all the fear that comes with that. But I want you to understand when Paul's looking toward the future, Paul doesn't just see death and destruction, 666, microchips, all the stuff that's going on, mark of the beast. He's looking forward and he sees a king that's ruling with all authority and every power and every spirit and every devil and every sickness will be brought down below to to worship and bow down to the authority of Jesus. Listen to 28 because this is the end of the redemptive plan. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his authority over all things, and this is the end of the redemptive plan, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Come on, give an amen right there. That is just, that's the end of the redemptive plan. The end of the redemptive plan is not you worrying whether or not you're going to have to take a mark of the beast. The end of the redemptive plan when you put your faith in Jesus Christ is that God will be supreme in everything, everywhere. And he will rule over it all. We win. I was talking with somebody today because I got a lot of friends. Pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers, post-tribbers, raptures, no raptures. I mean, I got friends all over the map in Revelation Uh, But in our discussion, we came to the end result. Dude, if it's pre-trib, mid, or post, the end result is it's all going to end the same. And it ends with our God ruling and reigning for eternity, having death conquered, having sickness conquered. And that, to me, just gives me great hope to read the book. Amen? Uh, So I, I wanted just to say all that because that's why the devil doesn't want you to know the future. It's why he doesn't want this book uncovered. It's why he doesn't want the events of the future known by you. He wants you skeptical. He wants you agnostic. He he wants you not even believing it's possible. Because he knows that if you know the end of the redemptive plan and you know the authority that's been given to Jesus and you know the authority that Jesus conquered on the cross and you know the authority that God gave every believer, all power has been given unto me, now go. All authority, now go. For if anybody be in me, I grant unto you the right to become a child of God. Acts 1.8, I will baptize you with power to be my witnesses on this planet. So this redemptive plan that includes you It's critical that you know what the future of the person that you're serving looks like. Otherwise, you become an anemic Christian. You get get sidetracked by your habits and sidetracked by your addictions and sidetracked by your fears and sidetracked by your pride and sidetracked by your trepidations of life and lust of life. We struggle more to deal with porn than even to know what the future of God looks like. We struggle more with little addictive habits than knowing who we are in Jesus. And this is where the very book starts this way. I want you to go into it knowing you can uncover it. You can know the mystery. You can see the redemptive plan of God. You can know what your future looks like. Don't be afraid of it. I love that. Next verse, verse 3. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This is going to be a critical thought. The next few thoughts are going to be very critical as we press into this book because there's a lot of people who, you know, are going to fall on the land of not what I'm about to tell you. 
I mean, there are people that believe what I'm going to tell you, but there's a whole other group of people that believe just the opposite. So I want to be smart enough to kind of at least give you, if you ever bump into it, I want to give you enough meat that you could fight this fight if you need to fight it. Here's verse 3. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Uh, We're going to pull that out deep, uh, why it was written to the church. And blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Uh, Here's the thought that I want to throw at you. There's many people that believe the book of Revelation has already happened. It's not future. It happened around A.D. 70, somewhere in there, you know. uh, Nero conquered and came in and overthrew the temple. And so there's a whole group of people and a doctrine that literally believes this book is not future. Every bit of it is past. I had a friend years ago that believes right now you and I are living in the millennial kingdom. And I thought, if that's true, man, I've been sold a major bill of goods. (laughs) I want my money back. I feel like I may have bought into a timeshare. I want my money back. I got sucked in and bought a timeshare, and now they're sucking my money dry. When he told me that the millennial kingdom was already here and this was it, and you and I were Jesus ruling and reigning, I'm like, dude, what have you been smoking? Because I don't see that. But he believed it emphatically. And there are other people that believe that the entire book is a book of fables, allegories and fables. It's just given to encourage you. It's not really real. It's just to inspire you to know that there's a spiritual war going on. But I would like you to think about this. If the revelation that was given by Jesus to John was just a fable, how could he expect me to obey it? It's hard to obey an allegory and a fable. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, How could I be held accountable to obey a fable or an allegory? So I will like to say if Jesus, through the angel speaking to John, says, this message you're about to hear needs to be obeyed, it tells me that there must be something attached to it that's not just an allegory, but it's a reality. And it is a reality that I can be judged against it. And then he says this, that it is a prophecy. Now the thing about a prophecy is is rather interesting. Is that the word prophecy, uh, the Greek word is propheteia. And it's a prediction of future events. This is the actual definition of it. So when he says the prophecy, this is what that means. So he says, I want you to write down the prophecy. So this is how it would read. I want you to write down the prediction of future events that are emanating from divine inspiration, meaning the angel sent from Jesus to John, that declares the purposes of God. So if I'm going to watch, if I'm going to understand future events, I'm going to have to understand them within the scope of God's purpose. So that the future that we're going to talk about in the book of Revelation isn't just some haphazard future with Neo taking the right pill and we're suddenly out of the matrix. It is a very systematic, divine inspiration of God Himself who is eternal, 
downloading future events. I will say, if this word prophecy bears true that that is the meaning, then there again, I don't think it's allegorical. Because the very word prophecy is connected to certain events, not allegorical fables, not happenstance, not symbols that aren't real. It's connected to actual future events. Every prophetic word, if you go back to the prophets in the Old Testament, every time they prophesied, even, even if it was in an allegorical sense, it was always specifically to some future event that was real. So I want to at least go into this saying that the book of Revelation to me is a real book about the events that are real that will happen in our future. And so that's kind of said all that because I want you to know how I'm going to go through it is realistically. So I do know that there's a lot of symbols, but when I hit the symbols, unless the Bible tells me what that is, because the Bible will make it known to me, if the Bible doesn't tell me what the symbol is, and I'm just going to take it as fact. He saw something coming up out of an abyss that had a tail like a hornet. Then that's what that was. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know our brains are in 2020 are like, I wonder if that's a tank. I wonder if that's an F-16. I wonder if that's a bomb, nuclear war. Well, here's what I know. Any future event that is out in front of me, I'm just going to take it that John wrote it like he saw it. And unless the Bible interprets it for me to be any different than what he saw, I'm just going to believe that he wrote down what he saw. Right? right? Rather than he wrote down something and that was probably a tank because he didn't know the word tank. Okay, I'm okay with that, right? Uh, the reason John wrote down he saw fire emulating out of a tail of a dragon, uh, you know, it's because John lived in a time he didn't know there was nuclear war. And he didn't know that there were helicopters that had Tomahawk missiles on them. And, and this is all I'd like to say to that. Do you really think if God was downloading the future to the brother, he couldn't have said, that's a helicopter. Right? Don't you think God would have told him that? Write down missile. Write down, right? I mean, if he's downloading the future and he's downloading it in pictures, why would God do it in such a way to just not... I mean, if he's God and he sees the future, then God knew that would be a tomahawk missile in nuclear war. So why trick me? That's kind of the way I tell you. I thought you made it clear. Well, if you made it clear, why are you tricking me? So here's how we're going to go through the whole book. If we see a symbol, we will look through the rest of the Bible in the chapter, the rest of the books, and all other 65 books to see if we can clearly define what this meant that John saw. And if we cannot find in Scripture what it meant, we're going to land in, then he wrote down exactly what he saw, and we're not going to try to figure out what it might be. Is that okay? So that's kind of the way we're going to go with that. Here's the rethink. I just said all that, but you can write it down. The book of Revelation is not a book of allegory and fables written by a poet to express mysteries of the future. Here's what it is. Revelation is a book of certainty. Events, places, people, and times all culminating in the conclusion of God's redemptive kingdom plan. Would you turn to the end of Revelation? I figure since I've taught that he is the beginning and the end and we're now in chapter 1, 
before we even really get deep into it tonight, this is kind of just, you know, getting the wheels wet a little bit in the first few verses. Go, if you will, to chapter 22 of Revelation. Because I want to I just give you a thought to ponder if it, if it is allegorical or if it is a fable. I don't think Jesus would have said what he's about to say if it was allegorical and a fable. And again, I'm going to really hold on. What I'm trying to hammer home to you is this book is real. It, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, it's not Don Quixote. It's, it's real. It's not just a literature. It's a real event, certainty. I wrote it. I'd just like you to look at it again. Let it just burn in because as we go through it, you're going to see all of this kind of come to life. It's a certainty. It's events. It's places. It's people. It's times. It's things that are happening in, into our future. I'll tell you why, as we go through it, why I believe that it hasn't already happened and it still is future, so I will deal with that in the lessons ahead. But for right now, listen to Revelation 22. If you'll open your Bible, it would be great for you to underline it, maybe put a note out. Maybe this is why it's real. Listen to what it states. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy. Okay, there's that word again, that, that prophetic word of, of prediction of future events. So let me read it that way. I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of the prediction of future events from divine inspiration concerning the purposes of God that are written in this book. If anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in the book. Again, if it was allegories and fables, how could Jesus be certain that the plagues would come on me if the plagues aren't really real plagues? Does that make sense? I want to move on if that doesn't connect with you. So then he says this, he says, and if anyone removes, verse 19, removes any of the words of the book of this prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that is described in this book. Now he tells me this, that the tree of life this book talks about is a real tree. It's not an allegorical fable tree. It is a real tree that you'll get to eat from. And the city he talks about that is the city, the holy city of God, the New Jerusalem, is a real city. And if you take away or add to this, you will not be part of that city and you will not eat from that tree. That tells me real clear that this book we're about to dive into is totally different than any other book that predicts the future. Because it's real, it's certain, it has plagues, it has promises, it has blessings, and it's connected to the words of Jesus Christ. And he himself assumes from his own nature that everything I'm about to download to you, John, is certain. That's better than you amen. <laughs> I don't want to move on if we're not really holding to it. So I, I just pray this sinks in because this is where we begin to unpack it. We begin to talk about the events, the places, and the people. And when you see them, I want you to see them as real future events that are coming upon our planet. Revelation 
you can see why we probably won't get done. We're just at verse 4. But it's going to be good. Amen? Verse 4. This letter is from John to the seven churches. Now, I'll I'll hold that thought, but but it's it's one I'm going to share in a minute. Let's just read it. All right? This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one, and here we go, we talked about this last week, the one who is, has present, the one who always was, has past, and the one who is to come. So there's a certainty he's coming. And from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. We'll we'll deal with that next week. We'll hold off on that thought. I I did highlight it so you know we're going to talk about Uh, One version says the seven spirits around the throne. We will discuss that. But the letter is written to churches. So this is what I want you to rethink this through. The rethink is this. The entirety of the prophecy of Revelation was specifically written to the church. All right? That tells me something. It's going to be difficult to unlock the mystery of Revelation if I have a poor understanding of the church. Does this make sense? I want you to write this revelation to the churches. I want you to send it to them. Let them see everything. Write it to the churches. And so if that be true, this is my speculation. I'm willing to be wrong, but this is what I speculate. It's silly for me to try to go understand 666, mark of the beast, tribulation period, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, is there a rapture, is there not, who are the saints that are going to be beheaded, are they Christians, are they the church, are they the Jews, are they Gentiles that get saved, is the Holy Spirit still here, is the Holy Spirit not still here, is he taken away, are we taken away, who's taken, right, I mean your, your brain just starts going crazy, well the way I want to dig it out for you tonight is I genuinely, with my whole heart, I genuinely believe that one of the reasons we have such a wide variety of understandings in Revelation as we study it is we tend to try to study the future events before we really get a revelation of the church. Because when you have a revelation of the church, the future events become more clear. At least that's what I feel, and I'll try to show you that tonight. I wrote this down in my notes. It takes revelation of the church to understand the revelation of Jesus given to John. People often try to understand the symbols and the end without clearly understanding the church. So what if I said to you, let's just ditch the book of Revelation for a while, and let's just spend the next 30 weeks talking about one thing, just the church. We wouldn't have packed it out. I I would think not, just from my experience. You see, talking about the church just doesn't really inspire me that much. I have bad thinking of the church. I've been hurt by a pastor. I've had some terrible experiences with Christian people. I would much rather talk about the devil in the future than the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ today is is not really the body of Christ. It's more denominations. It's not really the body of Jesus anymore. It's it's preferences. It's 
It's the kind of music we do. It's, it's whether or not we wear robes and sing hymns or we sing Bethel or we pray in tongues or we slap people on the head and they fall out or we sit very stoic and quiet and do chants. So when we talk about the church, because we're 2,000 years into the church, we have such a conglomeration of craziness that we just don't ever really study it. Because when you really study it, you suddenly get this revelation of something's happened. We're nowhere close to what we should be. What went wrong with us? Where, where did we go wrong? Where did denominational preferences and preacher preferences and you sit out there and worship me and, and, and bow to me and serve me because I am the shepherd, I'm the lead. What happened, what happened to us? That we forgot that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. That we're all important. We're all needed. We have different callings and different gifts. Well, if the devil knows that, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to tick you off, get you mad at the local church, get you upset at some preacher, somebody that did you wrong. I can't find a church that makes me feel good. Nowhere's home. Nobody loves me. I can't fit there. I tried to go, but nobody really helped me find a home. It's so uncomfortable. I can't. I'm working all the time. And John said, well, let's just start with the entire book of Revelation was written to the church. So you understand if, you're, if your thinking's messed up about the church, you're just going to be messed up. Let's take it this way. I'm going to do surgery on the human body, right? So I'm training to be a surgeon. And they come up and say, well, you're gonna, I'm going to train you to be a surgeon on the human body, and that's what we want you to do. And I'm like, dude, I am so ready. Okay, well, the only thing you're ever going to work on, because humans are really mean and they'll sue you, is you're going to work on turtles. <laughs> and so all my life I study turtles because I really want to do heart surgery on a human, but because they'll sue you, I just try to assume that a turtle and a human are, have the same thing, I guess. And it's kind of that way. It's just kind of like we, the church has been so misaligned with our hurts that we just go, well, okay, whatever. But I really want to, right? I really want to know what the future is. So that's my thinking. It wasn't just anyone. It was written to the church. Now, I would like to probably take the rest of the night and just end on this thought. So we'll probably get about six verses in tonight, which I knew... We, we would take about two weeks on this chapter. Here's a thought for you, and I'm going to dig this out fairly deep and then try to leave you to swim in it for a week. The church, okay, here's the thought. I'm going to go back to the thought just so you see it, so nobody's confused. The book was written to the church, and to really understand the prophecy, to unlock the mystery of the prophecy... I need to have an, a revelation of the church. Here's my first thought I want you to grab. The church. Now, when I say the church, I mean the body of people who choose to believe in Jesus, who claim that He's their Savior, who confess Him as their Lord. Without going too deep in that, you're baptized into the body. You're not baptized to a denomination. You're baptized into the body of Jesus. This is such a powerful thought that Paul says if you don't discern the body, you can die young. You can die before your time when you take communion. He says to the Corinthians in chapter 11, I believe it is, he says, when you come to the table, 
You come and get drunk. You eat in front of each other. And because you do not discern the Lord's body, many of you are sick and many of you die young. That's profound. I wonder how many times on a Sunday we just casually take communion and not realizing there is a connection to that table to my future health. We just, this grape juice. I just, grape juice and bread, great sermon, preacher. But to really understand a revelation of the church, this is why in Acts chapter uh, 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus. And I said this last week, I think, but when, when God appeared to him, Jesus appeared on the road and Saul fell to the ground. Uh, you remember what Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Well, he couldn't persecute Jesus. Jesus is already the risen Savior. Jesus is appearing to him from heaven on a road. But Jesus said, why, Saul, do you persecute me? You see what Jesus was doing? He was up here in eternity in the eternal spirit realm as a resurrected Savior seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul's down here killing Christians. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? In other words, you touch that person, you touch me. This is why God says I cannot stand gossip. I cannot stand discord among the brothers. Matter of fact, I hate it. I hate it when there's strife among the brothers and sisters. I hate it when there's gossip. I hate it when there's discord. And when there's discord and confusion and selfish ambition, there's every evil work. Because we are the body of Jesus. If you trash talk me, you're trash talking Jesus. If I trash talk Carmelo, I'm trash talking Jesus. If I say I can't stand Carmelo, he ticks me off. I'm literally pointing a finger at Jesus. Disdaining that God would pick him and choose him. I just call it gossip. I just call it irritation. He's mad at me, I'm mad at him, we'll deal with it. I'll never speak to him again. I'll defriend him. I wonder how many of us are in trouble today just because we don't understand all the people we're ticked at are connected to Jesus. Come on. I'm not trying to put you down. I mean, we're humans. We've all had our personal quirks with people. But it's just why forgiveness is so important. It's why bitterness in your heart needs to be let go of. God, let no human being stand in my way of your life working through me. Let no root of bitterness come in me to rot me to the bone. I really wonder many times how much sickness we deal with. It's not the devil. It's because we don't discern the body of Jesus Christ, the local church. It's just another meeting. It's just a Sunday morning gathering of people. That's hogwash. We are the body of Jesus Christ on this planet. So let's kind of dig this thought of the green word distinctly different. I gave you three words that I think will really sum it up of where I'm going. The church is distinctly different, it's set apart, and it's from all peoples of the earth. So here's the rethink for you. If you really want to start understanding the book of Revelation, you've got to see humanity as part of two families. There's not a ton of them, there's two of them. John chapter 8, verse 42 through 44, if you're taking notes. I'll read it. If you want to turn there, you can. I think it would be good for your eyes to see it. John chapter 8, verses 42 through 44. I'll, I'll read it. This is Jesus talking. 
If God were your father to the Pharisees, you would love me because I've come to you from God and I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. Listen now, verse 44 of John 8. For you are the children of your father, the devil. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. Jesus lumps every human on the planet into two families. You either are of God the Father and if you're not through Jesus Christ, this may sting a mite, it's just truth, you're, you're in the devil's family. So there is no other option there. It's why Jesus is the only way to be saved. I know that sounds narrow-minded. It's not narrow-minded. God's just trying to get you from one family to the next. But know this about God. When we begin to parse the future out and we go into the future, the unknown future that maybe could be known through Revelation, we will be seeing two different families on the planet. The children of God, the church... Those who choose to believe, they're called saints, kings, priests, the church, and then those who are children of disobedience, of their father Satan. Now there's two remedies that will show up in the Bible. The first one is the good one. It's the cross, Jesus Christ, that gives me grace and it leads to life. But because they're children of Satan, there's also the remedy of the law. If you can keep the law, you have life. That's the truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. Uh, John said of Jesus, he's both grace and truth. He's full of both of them. Grace meanings he offers you the cross. Grace meanings you don't deserve life, I give you life. Grace means you all can't obey. Please understand that. I obeyed for you. Trust me, you will have life. That's grace. However... Should you reject me and stay as Satan being your father, I will turn you over to the law. There's two laws that he'll turn you over to. This is why Revelation is going to be so critical because as we get into it, you're going to see he's going to be dealing with the law in the book of Revelation. I'll tell you how in a minute. The law is the Ten Commandments. To the Jew, you must keep the Ten Commandments. You break one, you break them all, you're guilty. Moses established the law. If they try to keep it and try to keep the law, praise God, maybe they can do it. But they cannot do it. We'll see this later. They cannot keep the law. But God doesn't keep the law away from them. He offers them a remedy. If they choose the remedy, they get grace. They become in his family. If they reject the remedy, then the law says you must be put to death. So what I'm going to show you as we move through it is the reason that God ends the book of Revelation. He ends the church and we move into chapter 4 is once we end chapter 2 and 3 of the church, which is the representation of Jesus Christ's grace, His cross to humanity, that if anyone believes we can be saved, but if we reject that, the rest of the entire book, this is my belief, chapter 4 on 
is Jesus dealing with everyone who's rejected him. It has nothing to do with me and you. It has everything to do that I have to judge you. And this is how he judges. There's three nations. There's the Jews, there's the Gentiles, and then there's the church. To really understand how the book of Revelation plays out is we get all these people mixed up. First uh, Peter states it this way. I'll, I'll give you the text. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, if you'll turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4. Listen to this. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for a great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What is more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, verse 6, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble. And the stone, the rock that makes people fall. Do you understand? Jesus is very clear. If you receive me, you become a priest. You become my child. I give you grace. No punishment will be upon you. We'll see this as we go forward in our lessons. There will be no punishment placed on Diane Weldon. When Diane Weldon chooses to believe me, every bit of wrath and judgment of God will be upon my back and it will never be appointed unto you to go through the wrath of God ever because I went through it for you. I took the curse of the law for you, Diane, because you could not obey. I obeyed for you. Believe in me. I shall grant unto you eternal life, bring you unto myself, and I will capture you with my grace. You will be my daughter. I will be your father. I will hold you. I will marry myself to you. I will be there for you. I will grant unto you to eat at the tree of life. However, Diane, if you reject me, I will hold you accountable to your own law, the law of your heart. I won't hold you accountable to the Ten Commandments. You're not a Jew. I'll hold you accountable to your own law, the rules you make for yourself, the things you do in your own conscience. You'll stand before me and I'll ask, did you keep your conscience perfectly clean and clear? And you will answer, nobody can do that. I fail my own laws. I make them and break them. It's what we do. He will say, then you are guilty and you will be judged forever to burn in a lake of fire because I have to remain faithful to who I am to judge sin. Now that hurts, but I want you to understand what we're doing is we're trying to go through the book of Revelation and bring the church into it and go, are these the church? Are they Christians? Are they the church? Well, who are they? Saints? Or, oh, please explain. I'm going to try to explain it in a way that's clear through the three nations. He'll say this about the church. The church is holy. The word holy, you're a holy priesthood. You're chosen. It means to be set apart. It means you're distinctly different. It means I will not treat you like everyone else. It means you're my own people. 
It means you belong to me. It means you're my body. It means you've been grafted into me. It means that I will hold nothing against you. I will take everything that was stationed against you and I will nail it to the cross. I will hold you accountable for no law. You are my people called by my name. And then we look at that and go, I just don't understand. Will the church go through the wrath of God? But on the other side of the coin are all the other nations, all the other people who will be on the planet who aren't the church. And there's only two other groups of people, a Gentile or a Jew. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Whether you're Japanese or Chinese or whatever, there's just two groups of people in God's mind, a Jew and a Gentile, and all of them will be judged. They'll be judged by the Ten Commandments and be kept guilty because they're Jews or they'll be judged by their own laws and own moral codes of their own conduct. Either way, I'm going to judge them and give them the rightfulness of their judgment. However, I'm going to offer you a plan to get you out of these families of nations and put you into a new nation. I'm going to put you into the church. I'm going to bring you to myself. So I really just want you to grab this because as we go through the book of Revelation... Chapters 2 and 3 are going to deal with the church. We're going to finish the church. God has to finish what He started. He's going to finish this grace moment of redeeming work to every person who would believe in His name. He's going to grant unto you grace to believe in Him. But there will come a day where the turnaround will happen and the church will be, in my opinion, the church will be brought to Him. I'll teach you this in depth. It will be brought to Him And then God will begin to deal in the book of Revelation. He will deal with every person and every nation that has ever rejected him. And he will begin to allow the law of Leviticus to fulfill itself upon the Jewish people. And he will begin to judge the world. So this is where I'm trying to get you to. I don't think the church is going to be there. I know many people do. I'm trying to build why I don't think it will be. And that's just kind of point one. We're different. And God will deal with us differently. He always has through past, present, and future. His people are always pulled aside and dealt with differently. When the judgments came against Egypt, he pulled his people into the land of Goshen. When the judgment came against Noah's generation, he pulled Noah into the ark. And I hear people say, well, still, Noah had to go through it. Still the people had. I'm okay with that. I'm okay if that's where you want to go right now. I just want you to land on every time the wrath of God or the devil has been poured out, God has always moved his people into a place that when he's working his plan, his people are divinely protected. I'm not talking about when the devil's working his plan. We see all through... All through the Old and New Testament that the devil gets kicked off, murders babies, kills Christians, throws them in lion's den, burns them, boils them, chops them up, uh, afraid of Jezebel. We do know that the devil just kind of has a heyday killing God's people. The book of Revelation isn't the devil killing people. The book of Revelation is the wrath of God being displayed upon the earth for judgment of those that have rejected him, both Jews and Gentiles. I am going to judge them all. This thing that the book of Revelation is the devil's ticked off and he's doing his thing. 
The devil is nothing more than a player in the purposes of God as he plays out this judgment of the Lord. Totally different. Wrath is different than persecution. I hear people say this about the rapture. Oh, you believe in the rapture? And that's just so silly because you just think God's going to rescue you off the planet. Don't you know we have to be persecuted? Persecution brings purity. Persecution brings strength. I'm like, persecution is totally different from wrath. They're being persecuted in China right now. They're being persecuted in the Middle East right now. Because that's what happens to Christians that live in any country other than a country like this. We get persecuted. We get our heads chopped off. We get boiled alive. We get our cars blown up. We get our churches burnt down. That's called persecution from the enemy. Persecution from the enemy and wrath from God are 1,000 degrees different. And revelation is the outworking of the wrath of God. And Paul will say this, it is not appointed unto the church to suffer or go through the wrath of God. Come on, somebody. Give an amen on that one. It's not appointed unto you. It's not appointed to Diane to go through that. Will Diane be persecuted? Well, sure, she lives on a planet where people hate Christians. If Diane went to China and got arrested, could she go to jail and get beheaded? Perhaps so. That's persecution. But again, this is why as you go through the book of Revelation, it starts this way, and we'll get into this. It starts this way. And Jesus held the scroll and he pulled the seal off. This is not something the devil starts. The devil's already working right now. The book of Revelation is Jesus holding the scroll with seven seals and he pops the first seal and that scroll he's holding is the title deed to the earth. It is the promises of God the creator and he pops that first seal off and when he pops that first seal he is stating unto us this is nothing the devil's about to do. This is nothing because God's mad at people. This is what God said he would do. He would judge sinful mankind and he would judge sin. He's not ticked at humans. He's just living up to his faithful nature. And pop goes number one. I would just, as we come next week and dig this even deeper, I would just challenge you highly to really consider that wrath is different than persecution. And how in God, me thinking, now I'm just preaching, how in God's name could I be the church and go through the wrath of God in tribulation and God pour out all these judgments on sin and upon the world and blood upon the oceans and blood upon the river and boils and lands are blowing up and islands are blowing up and mountains are being leveled. And God says, now good luck, I'll come down a little while and pick you up. I just don't even see it. Why? Because if I am the body of Christ and Jesus is the one who's breaking the seals to bring on the very earth that I live, then it seems like if the very earth that I live on in His body is now being judged by Him in wrath, He's a house divided against Himself. Because there's two houses of God right now. There's the house of God and the temple of God in heaven. And then there's me, the house of God and the temple of God here. And if the house of God in heaven is dumping wrath out on the temple of God down here on the earth, that seems to me it would be a house divided against itself. This is why I believe God says, well, wait, before I do that, let me bring you to myself, which we call rapture. Well, there is no word rapture. Yeah, I'm good with that. I'm just talking about bringing him to himself to say, now that you're with me, I can perform the judgment on everyone who's rejected me. 
All right, I'm going to give you a thought, and then I'm going to let you go study. We'll pick it up here next week. Here are the seven churches. For those of you that love to study, this will be a fun week for you right here. Because this is what I want you to ponder. Here are the seven churches that we looked at in week one. It's weird because they're off the coast of Turkey. And I gave you the, the Middle Eastern map. There's Iraq. We talked about that night, uh, week one. But as I studied this out, I thought, now here's a weird thought. When John wrote to these churches, there were many more churches than just a conglomerate of seven in the tip of Turkey. Right? I mean, there's obviously there's church. This is 96 AD when he's writing, so we're 60 plus years removed from the death of Jesus. There's more churches than just these seven. These seven are up north, kind of northwest of, of Israel, this land that is the promised land. And yet, Jesus, this, we'll talk about this more in chapter two and three, but Jesus tells John, write to this group of churches off the coast where he's going to be exiled. We'll, we'll look at that. You're going to write to these seven churches and send them a letter, and the letter will go to these seven churches to tell them of the certain events of the future and know that the reason I'm writing to them is because they're distinctly different and they're part of my divine purpose and they need to understand the revelation of these churches so you can understand how my plan is going to come out. So in, in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to look at the historical figures of all of these churches and what in God's name could these churches tell us about our future. But here's what I want you to think about. Here's where they're located again. This is your go-home study point. These churches are located kind of northwest from Israel. But look at this map and tell me this is not interesting. The promised land, which was promised to Abraham. Uh, you go out of, out of here into this land of Canaan that I will show you. I'm going to give you that land. This is the land, pretty much the borders, of, of the literal land that God promised Abraham. Right? right now it's divided up in several different countries and all of them are mad at Israel. Most of them. They hate Israel. Israel owns the right to this land. My belief is in Revelation 5, when the scroll begins to open, it's Jesus that is about to claim rights back to this land that he originally promised. And this is why at the end of the book, most of the battles, the battle of Armageddon, uh, the Antichrist coming against it, Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, all of that battle toward the end of the book of Revelation will happen inside that pink realm. Just grab hold of that. Like, this is, we'll get there. Once mid-trib hits, and we hit mid-trib, mid-tribulation, almost every part of what happens after mid-trib will happen in and around this light pink area. America won't even be here, in my opinion. It's going to happen. Now, here's the weird thing, just to think about. Why would Jesus, who's giving the revelation through the angel, tell him to send to the churches that aren't even part of the promised land? You would think if it was so important... 
that he would say, send to the church in Jerusalem. At least that's the mothership. Wouldn't you think if you have a prophecy about the future, you would at least send it to the mothership. Send the first letter to the church at Jerusalem. No, either Jesus was ticked at him, or he's trying to tell us something in this. I believe he's trying to give us insight. And the insight is what I told you. He wants you to know that he distinctly sees the church separate and different than how he sees the promises given to the Jewish nation. And the promises he will make to the seven churches, he will deal with them in a separate and different manner than he will deal with the Jews that reject him in the promised land. The blessings he promised Abraham, we get through Jesus Christ. But everyone who rejected him know this, the blessings are still there. The Ten Commandments wasn't given for me and you, they were given to Jews. We got grafted in by grace. We were hopeless people. You weren't even part of the plan originally, but because the Jews rejected him, God says, oh, you all want to reject me, hot pink? I'll pull out my people, bright red, and I'll deal with those people that are mine separately than I'll deal with those of you that have rejected me. My belief is the reason we have chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to teach us that God is going to deal with the churches on a different level and a different time frame and a different structure than He's going to deal with the Jews to fulfill the promises given to Abraham and King David. And He's going to separate them and deal with them differently. And I'll teach you how He's going to do that next week. Is that okay? All right, let me bless you. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to at least get started. Lord, I thank you that you just let this sink into our heart tonight. I pray, God, that you'll just open our spirit to just maybe the notes we took and the things we're thinking about. But Lord, I pray this week that you just begin to challenge us. I pray this week that we begin to get a great revelation of this thing, person of the body of Christ called the local church. I give you thanks and I give you praise in Jesus' precious name. And you say amen. 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 I love you. I bless you. I'll see you next week. We'll pick right up here and we'll start digging it out even further. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.